0: Welcome to General Chemistry One. My name is Mr. Ferguson, and this is General Chemistry One. I am passionate and I'm excited. It is a treat for me to be your professor this semester. General Chemistry One, it provides a basis and a foundation for analytical chemistry, biochemistry, organic chemistry, and physical chemistry. General Chemistry 1 gives you the skills, tools, and acumen that you need to pursue your future careers. General Chemistry. General Chemistry 1. My name is Mr. Ferguson. I am a young faculty member at the University of Bahamas. Just before we get started, I want to remind everyone you are not alone. This is an academic community. Remember to get help when needed. Reach out to the university services if needed. Never give up. Keep trying. We are here to help you be ethical intelligent, and successful scientists. However, at the end
1: of the day, you must be responsible, ethical, and hardworking.
2: So a little bit about me. I am a value-driven
0: individual. I want to make value-driven impact in society using science principles. Some of my values are respect, integrity, and excellence. I, I expect those values to be exhibited in this class this semester. As I said earlier, I'm a young faculty at the University of Bahamas. Some roles I've served in, I've served as a graduate student. I've served as a bridge fellow, graduate student at Indiana University Bloomington. I have served as a bridge fellow with one of the largest scientific societies, the American Chemical Society. I have also served as a GEM Fellow with the National GEM Consortium. I have served as a podcaster for the New Chemist, the co-host of the New Chemist, as well as an author for several books. Lecture attendance is mandatory. At this time, lecture will take place via Zoom. Class assignments will be placed on the online platform. If similar information about the class is lost, for the first instance, we can arrange for another copy. After that, correspond with your classmates. A lot of the information that is provided this semester will be provided electronically. Summaries of lecture notes will be uploaded and provided. My goal is to make this class as engaging and enjoyable and cognitively stimulating as possible. The course textbook is Chemistry: The Central Science by Brown, LeMay, Burstein. Murphy, Woodward, and Stoltzfus, students in this class at UB North, an electronic version of a chemistry guidebook will be gifted at no cost, it is up to you whether you use it or not, as well as supplementary notes and problem sets will be provided at no cost. Office hours will occur via Zoom. Office hours will occur. Try not to fall behind to make the class for you a more enjoyable experience. Regrading is not the ideal scenario, but if needed, it can occur. The grader and I will discuss any possible regrades, and it will be reassessed entirely if our regrade opportunity is granted. Also, a two-page justification of why must be written and emailed to the professor. There will be three exams, each worth 150 points. Each exam will be 50 multiple choice, each worth two points, and there will be five short answers, each worth 10 points. The dates for the exams are September 21st, October 26th, and November 23rd this semester. Only medical absences approved by the university are allowed. Any other absence will be a zero, and you can drop your lowest grade. Look at the syllabus for the dates. Quizzes will be given at the beginning of the week. Each week they will be released electronically. Um, this starts August 29th. If this changes, I will let you know. And it ends November 21st. These dates are subject to change. Quizzes will be 10 questions, each worth 0.5 points. The points will be added at the end of semester at the end of the semester. At least 70% on all the quizzes is equivalent to the addition of 1% to your overall grade that's the equation to calculate what percent will be added to your overall grade there is uci open courseware these lectures can be found on youtube there is mit open courseware those are available on youtube as well there's khan academy i will provide learning chaos, the equivalent of a podcast but it will be specifically for you Bnos students in my class with the class content in a creative format. The link will be available on a YouTube channel page. Students when possible should become familiar with the various withdrawal and drop dates noted by the University of the Bahamas. This is your responsibility. All withdrawals are handled by the registrar. The late date Last date, rather, for an automatic grade of W is determined by the registrar. So, 1,050 points equals 100% in the class. There's the equation to calculate your grade. Collaboration and teamwork is allowed on homework. However, for the Google Form with electronic version of the homework set, a requisite hard copy picture will be mandatory for homework submission. Essentially, when you submit your homework, A hard copy of the written version of your homework is going to be required to be uploaded to submit your homework. And for it to be graded. Some of the topics we will talk about this semester. We will talk about wave-particle duality of light. That's just a fancy way to say light exists as a wave and it also exists as particles. And those particles are quantized as photons. We will also talk about atomic spectroscopy and line spectra. So the different types of line spectra. We could go on, we could talk about the Balmer series, the Lyman series, the Paskin series. Um, we can also talk about um, different models of atomic spectra with, with the Bohr model. And I'm gonna show you a nice creative way I came up with you to practice writing your Bohr model structures. We will have a problem solving session. Uh, and That will be the exam. We'll discuss the Bohr model by Niels Bohr. And orbital diagrams. We will discuss Lewis structures by Gilbert and Lewis. Molecules and polyatomic ions. We will discuss resonance structures. So those three topics right there, they kind of give you a foundational basis. to so the born model, Lewis structures, and resonance structures. They give you a basis for understanding chemical reactivity and chemical reactions. Um, we'll discuss that later on. So um, for the... For the week of October 10th to the October 14th, we will have problem-solving sessions. On October 10th, there is no class. However, during the week of October 10th to the October 14th, on the Wednesday of that week, there will be an exam. So you can use that no-class day to catch up on homework, relax, and prepare for your exam. From the weeks, uh, For the weeks of October 17th to the 21st and October 24th to the 28th, We will discuss thermodynamics. We will discuss thermochemical equations, explain exothermic and endothermic processes. Those are some of the things you will discuss. We will also discuss in the the ensuing weeks thermochemical equations, Hess's law, bond enthalpies, the Born Arbor cycle, which is basically a, a named description of how ionic compounds form in which they transition or change states. In the process of them changing states, they are ionized, and those ions combine together to form a crystalline lattice. And then we will have a problem-solving session, and exam three, and then we will have the final exam. So, if you feel overwhelmed from just this, be encouraged. The goal is not to make you feel overwhelmed. The goal is to help you to succeed and give you the capacity building experience that you need to be the successful doctor, the successful scientist, a successful researcher, the successful professor, a successful person that you need to be in this society. So we're going to review some concepts at this time. Some fundamental skills I need you to have grasped. we're going to spend a good portion of this lecture discussing fundamental skills. I will give you problems. There will be short answers. And I will also give you problems which are equations. However, in this lecture, we will discuss the concepts. And then in the practice or in the subsequent sessions and problem-solving sessions, we will discuss how to solve the problems with heuristics and algorithms. We will discuss simple ways as to how you can understand what the question is asking and how you can solve it. And then we will discuss the wave particle duality. So the goal of this class is to teach the chemistry content in an engaging manner that is relevant to the Bahamian student and digestible for their understanding. So I want you to understand the concepts, practice the problems that are relevant to understanding that concept, learn more nuanced details about the concept and then practice more complex problems that integrate the details and the fundamental understanding. So let me give you an example. Say we were talking about the Bohr model. First, I would give you the workbook that I designed for specifically for this class on the Bohr model, have you practiced those problems? Understand the Bohr model was basically a description and a representation of how atoms, when we designate their energy levels as quantized states or discrete levels that the transition of those electrons from one energy level to the other results in the release of a frequency of light and that is characteristic and observed as a specific color. In short, levels are quantized. Those levels provide a disc- display of light at a specific frequency when those electrons relax. And that's the fundamental concept. More nuanced details we c- you will be how does that play out when we try to describe or understand the amount of energy that's released? And that energy is equivalent to a specific frequency, or proportional rather, to a specific
1: frequency. So let's review at this time. So I'm gonna walk you through this review. I'm gonna walk you through this review.
2: So Okay, so everyone, I designed
0: the guidebook with the intention of teaching the content in a creative way,
1: and we're going to walk through this content, and we're going to walk through the equations. So as we begin this class, I want you to think about how will college be different from grade school? I
0: want you to stop and think about this. I know for me personally, college required a higher level of engagement, a higher level of time management skills, and a higher level of dedication to my studies.
1: What do you think it requires to be successful in college? Success in college requires a number of factors and they vary from person to person.
0: However, one thing we know Is that success requires you operating
2: with self discovery? Hold on a second. Let's continue. How well do you
0: expect to do in your first few semesters here? And how do you plan to aim for that success? As a science student and a former science student, because we're all learners here, as a science student when I was an undergrad, one of the things that stood out to me was you must schedule your
1: time and you must manage your time well. So the important thing for you to understand
0: here, yes, there are animations, and the animations are placed there to make this discussion engaging for you. So the important things to think about is what is your learning style? How do you learn best? Are you an auditory learner? Are you a visual learner? Do you need to write it out? Do you need to use programs like Quizlet, Kahoot, Anki? All of those things, they are important and you need to know what works best for you. Uh, If you're trying to understand what it entails for a career, there are podcasts you can listen to. There are a variety of things out there. This experience in this class will be what you make of it. I will try to give you the opportunities, the facilities, the resources for you to succeed. However, the work and the onus is on you. You must be dedicated, motivated and encouraged to work well. So what time management strategies and group studying approaches can you use to ensure learning and academic success? So essentially, do you need to use Google Calendar? Do you need to use Outlook? Do you need to use a hard copy planner? I use both Google Calendar and a hard copy planner. You have to find what works for you and implement that strategy. Um, later on, we will discuss and I will show you a video on strategy before this lecture ends. The importance of strategy. Strategy is more than just planning, it must be strategic. Now some big ideas that this college chemistry covers, some of which we will discuss in the context of this semester. All matter is composed of atoms and intermolecular forces and bonding explains their properties. Simply put, matter, things like solids, liquid, gases, ice for example is a solid, liquid, water, and gas would be water vapor, all of those things are composed of atoms. Those atoms are bonded together, covalently, of course, to form H2O. Within or among those H2O molecules, there are intermolecular forces. And those intermolecular forces are hydrogen bonds. Those hydrogen bonds help us understand the physical and chemical properties of water. It's important for you to understand that everything boils down to the compositional units of the matter or the object you are describing. Chemical reactions involve intramolecular and intermolecular changes. Chemical reactions, whether they be double displacement, addition, substitution, um, displacement, single displacement, whatever the type of reaction that's being discussed or displayed, um, chemical reactions involve intramolecular, so we're talking about the bonding and intermolecular, we're talking about what happens in between those molecules, those changes. So molecular collisions, molecular geometry and the approach between molecules influences the speed of those reactions. So you also have thermodynamics and kinetics, they provide a lot of insight into physical and chemical changes. So thermodynamics is like one end of the seesaw and kinetics is the other end of the seesaw. They are distinct, yet they coincide at points. Thermodynamics basically explains how heat and disorder plays or functions in chemical reactions. Kinetics explains how fast reactions occur and why they occur fast and what causes them to go fast, whether it be their orientation, their proximity, or that number of collisions. So, equilibrium and thermodynamic parameters such as entropy, which is another a fancy way to describe disorder, entropy, which is basically how you describe the heat energy of a reaction, and Gibbs free energy, which describes the capacity of the of the reaction or the molecule to do work of the reaction or to do work. And those ideas, entropy, entropy, and Gibbs free energy, provide insight into a reactions thermodynamic potential, whether it's thermodynamically favorable or not. Another way to say that is whether it's spontaneous or not, or whether it will occur or it's likely to occur or not. It gives us insight into the products that will form, uh, how fast those products will, off, um, will form. And those parameters also give us insight into how they form. So that's important to understand. So we will discuss... In this review session, this is the review session, we will discuss MADA, dimensional analysis, problem solving, and introduction, and we'll introduce the history of some chemistry pioneers. So let's talk about the scientific method. The scientific approach to information consumption and knowledge generation involves the scientific method. So what does that mean? The scientific method is the way scientists do science. Essentially, the way they operate, the way they think, the way they practice it's, if I was to give an analogy uh, the scientific method is how they operate this figure below describes or shows an example or a version of how the, sci- the process of thinking occurs for the scientific method you have your observation and then from your observation, whether you look at it physically, you look, try to break it down chemically you look at the hypothesis, which is basically your educated guesses about what
1: is going on. And from there, you run experiments. From those experiments, you gain results. From those experiments, you gain results. And from those results, you gain conclusions. And after
0: you've done that enough, those conclusions lead to a discovery. And discovery goes along and gives you an idea or a theoretical explanation as to what is
2: going on. And then we have our physical or scientific law.
0: So, a critical part of nature is energy which is basically the capacity to do work or to cause change. Those changes can be physical or chemical. Now, let's keep this in mind. Matter is anything that has mass or a definite volume. There are several states of matter, which are solid, liquid, gas, and plasma. The main states we'll discuss in this class are solid, liquid, and gas. Matter undergoes different types of changes, and those changes can be physical or chemical. So a physical change involves changes that do not rearrange the intramolecular bonding arrangement or electron configuration. So, what does that mean? When you're dealing with physical changes, we're not changing the bonding, we're not changing the ionic bonding or the covalent bonding, we are not changing how those atoms are connected together. We're not changing how those electrons are configured or arranged or distributed in the atom. We're only changing. from the macroscopic view, this is a simple way to put it, from the macroscopic view, we change the state. So, for example, with water, a physical change for water will be melting. So when the ice goes to water, or when the water goes to a vapor, those are all physical changes. The hydrolysis, or the electrolysis of those water molecules, of the atoms in those water molecules, the splitting of those things, That is a chemical change. Simply put, physical properties of substances, such as ductility, physical state, appearance, like color, texture, whether it's rough or smooth, those are the things that change when we're talking about physical changes. A chemical change, on the other hand, is a change that affects the intramolecular bonding arrangements of the chemical properties, such as the electron configuration or the chemical bonding of the substance. So when we talk about electron configuration, we're talking about how the electrons are distributed within the atom or the molecule. We'll discuss those things later. In terms of chemical bonding, we're talking about ionic, which occurs between metals and non-metals, or covalent, which occurs between non-metals, or metallic, which occurs within metals. We're talking about that fundamental level of bonding. So it requires, if you think about it, because, those particles require a good bit of energy to be bonded together to these interactions that we call columbic interactions. Because of that, we know that it requires a good bit of energy for that to occur. So That requires a specific type of change and that is chemical changes. So let's also talk about measurements. Measurements are important in science. These values are important because they affect the data's precision. So how close the measured values are to each other and the data's accuracy, how close are the measured values to the true value. So precision, if you were to think of a dartboard,
1: a dartboard has different ranges. If you hit within the same area So if
0: you hit all of the darts on one location of the dartboard, all of them go in one area of the dartboard, that is precision. If you hit all of them on the bullseye, that is accuracy. So some SI units. The SI units will be um, that are commonly discussed in chemistry. A length, which is in the SI unit of meter. Time, which is in the SI unit of second. Amount of substance, which is in the SI unit of mole. Electric current, which is in the SI unit of Ampere. Temperature, which is in the SI unit of Kelvin. And luminous intensity, which is in the SI unit of
1: Candela. It's also important to remember that mass is in the SI unit of kilogram. So there
0: are significant figures that are important. Significant figures. Some rules to keep in mind. There are four rules I want you to remember in this class. Non-zero digits are always significant. Any zero contained between
1: non-zeros is significant. For example, 203 or 203, the zero
0: in between 2 and 3 is significant. Leading zeros are typically not significant. Final zeros or trailing zeros are significant only after the decimal. So these are important rules to remember, significant figures. So, in this section, we will provide analysis as to how to do dimensional analysis calculations. So, if you think back to when you did BGCSE chemistry, there were these calculations that you had to do. They were called stoichiometry, they were discussed under the name or moniker um, stoichiometry. So, that is a version, a simplified version of dimensional analysis. So, the thing that you have to think about. And that should be, uh, that should be spelled chemistry, so excuse that. Um, Things you have to think about. You have to look for what are you given? What is in your hand? What is on the paper? What values have you been given to solve this problem? Solve for. What are you aiming for? What value or specific parameter are you aiming for? The other info in the problem, that is something, the details of the problem, those are things you want to think about. That's step 3. The conceptual plan, how will you solve the problem, the solution, what will you do to solve that problem? And then you check it out. You check it with your intuition, your fundamental understanding of the concepts. You're going to check it out with that, and you're going to solve the problem. So step one, you look at your given info. Step two, you solve for a specific variable. Um, step three, you look at the other info. You keep the problem in context. Step four, you come up with how you're going to solve it. Your conceptual plan. Step five, you give up, you give your solution. Step six, you check out check out your solution and see if it makes chemical sense. So this is a general idea. You look at the number of objects over one times the related object over one object and design as a unit over the unit. So th- this is how you would solve it. Generally solve. Um, a metric problem. So let's, let's give, think of an example. Say for example we want to solve for the length of a group of hydrogen atoms. So, in this basic step, we use the number of objects given in the problem as the basis for conversion and solutions. That is going to be step one. So the number of atoms in one mole is Avogadro's number 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd, those are the number of atoms in one mole of hydrogen. And then we think of a ratio. So we have the number one mole, we have the number of atoms of the object. So as we said earlier, the number of objects, we know the number of objects. Now we're going to relate it to something over one object. So if we want to solve the length of a group of hydrogen atoms, we look at one mole, 6.02 times 10 to 23rd atoms, times... 212 picometers over one atom and then from there we discuss or we note how long is that picometer, how long is a picometer. And so um, we know that 10 to the 12 picometers equals 1 meter and we calculate it out and we get 1.28 times 10 to the 8th meters sorry for the missing unit, we get 1.28 times 10 to the 8 meters and that's the length of a group of hydrogen atoms if they were all placed in one line together. So what is a derived unit? So we just discussed how you solve for metric analysis problems. And I will give you some of those to solve. What is a derived unit? A derived unit is a combination of other units Examples of derived units are those for force, which is kilogram meter per second squared, which is force is equal to mass times acceleration. So kilogram is the unit for mass, meters per second squared is the unit for acceleration. Multiply those two, you get kilogram times meter over second squared. And for momentum, momentum is mass times velocity. And from that, we get that um, the unit for that is kilogram
2: Per kilogram meter per second.
1: So what is that now we're going to talk about? We're still discussing foundations.
0: So we're going to now talk about what is an intensive property? An intensive property, intensive, independent. Of the amount of substance. So an intensive property is a property that's independent of the amount of substance. And it involves or an example of that is going to be density. So it's a characteristic property. It doesn't change depending on the amount that you have. It is the same no matter what you and what amount of it you have. An extensive property is a property that does depend. So it extend does depend on the amount of substance. An example of that is going to be mass. The mass of substance is dependent on the amount that you have. So, we're still talking about foundations. These are things I need you to understand. This is the language, the jargon, the foundational ideas. That I need you to understand for us to do chemistry this semester. Regardless of the format, I need you to understand this. What type of substance is a compound? A compound is an example of a pure substance. So, compounds are pure substances. An example of a pure substance is going to be sodium chloride, pure sodium chloride, crystalline sodium chloride. That's a compound made up of two different elements. And that is a pure substance and it is a compound. What type of substance is an element? An element is a pure substance made up of. One type of atom. So, for example, sodium metal is an element. That's a pure substance. I say sodium metal is an
1: element. So, what type of substance is carbon monoxide? I know you've heard of carbon monoxide poison, which is dangerous if you don't have proper facilities. What type of substance is carbon monoxide? Carbon monoxide is also a pure substance as a compound made of carbon and
2: oxygen. What type of property is color? Color is a physical property and does not
0: necessarily require the intermolecular bond breaking to be observed, although some electronic transitions do result in color changes and that's where we get the atomic spectral series
1: from. So it's interesting how they interplay. What are the rules for significant figures? So if we look at the animation, we can see that all non-zero zero digits are significant, interior
0: zeros are significant, Leading zeros are not significant. Trailing
1: zeros after decimal point are significant. Trailing zeros before decimal point are significant,
0: and an avoid unclear notations such as trailing zeros before an implied decimal point. So let's
1: keep going. What is an example of a game that combines the ideas of precision and accuracy? Dart. Dart's, Darts is an example of a game that combines ideas of precision and accuracy. Now let's talk about some more foundational concepts.
0: We're going to talk about conservation laws. These are important to understand. These are foundational things that we're reviewing before we get into wave particle duality. These are things I need you to understand and understand well. So rewatch this video if you need to. Rewatch it again. I recommend you do it. At least watch it twice and take detailed notes, and design this in such a way so that it can be integrated, it can be engaging, it can be stimulating, it can be well understood what are the foundational concepts I need you to know for this semester. So what is the law of conservation of mass? The law of conservation of mass states that the total mass of a substance in a closed system does not change where there is neither generation or, consu- or consumption in the system. Essentially it says, for mass,
1: mass is not created or destroyed. So what is the law of conservation of energy?
0: Conservation laws, which are noted in the animation, they are classical. Conservation laws, they are, or for the law of conservation of energy. Energy is never created, or destroyed, it's only transferred from one form
1: to another heat energy to light energy so keep that in mind now let's talk about some key scientists i need you to know a few people we gotta know a few people before we really
0: delve deep into wave parking duality because there's another group of people that i want you to know about so who are all the scientists that have been presented so far why are their contributions so significant to chemistry Joseph Proust is important. I need you to know, and I will give you a worksheet with these people on it. Antoine Lavoisier is important. Um, Joseph Proust is important. John Dalton is important. Albert Einstein is important. All of these people. Let's talk about. Um, let's talk about, for example, John Dalton. His theory of atomic, his atomic theory was pivotal to understanding, um, understanding mass and understanding key ideas with atomic mass. Even though it had to be refined, his ideas were fundamental, whether it be from the original founder or the original person who described Mahadhan's compositional units, John Dalton. It's important.
1: So, what is the law of definite proportions? And this is where Joseph Proust comes in. The law of definite
0: proportions refers to substance composition. Classically states that specific compounds are always made of the same elements in the same ratio. This is true. H2O is H2O. It has a definite proportion. Two molecules, two atoms rather, of hydrogen with one atom of oxygen. And you see this in the balanced chemical equation. The balanced chemical equation is proof positive that the law of definite proportions is true in many instances, or in all instances, at this level. What is the law of multiple proportions? This is where John Dalton comes in. The law of multiple proportions basically states that two atoms c and d when combined two together for a compound, the ratio of d to the one compound in the one compound rather to the ratio of d in the other compound will be a definite ratio. So for example, let's t- let's make this more concrete. So the law of multiple proportions states basically two atoms. so let's talk about hydrogen and oxygen. So let's think about that when combined to form a compound water the ratio of oxygen in compound one and the ratio of oxygen in another compound would be a definite ratio for example ratio of oxygen in water to the ratio of oxygen and magnesium oxide would be a definite ratio it would be one to one what made dalton's atomic theory significant so dalton as you see on the graphic some of his ideas which have been refined. Each element is composed of tiny particles called atoms. All atoms of the same element have the same mass. Atoms combine in simple whole number ratios to form compounds. And he said that atoms of one element cannot change into other atoms of another element. We know that that is not the complete story. Number four, the tenant of this atomic theory is not the complete story. Because as we learned later on, after John Dalton, with um, the Curie family, Marie Curie and her daughter, Irene Jolot Curie, um, we learned that there's a thing called transmutation in which you have one element being converted to another element and that involves radioactivity uh, and radioactive decay so but let's keep, keep the big picture in mind what
1: made his atomic theory significant? his ideas have been adjusted but his theory is significant because although some changes were made
0: his work laid a good foundation for chemistry research at the time and today and understanding chemical reactions. Ladies and gentlemen, this shows the iterative nature of science that we are constantly learning and developing new ideas using a dynamic scientific method. Who was J.J. Thompson? See, we're talking about people now. These are people you need to know about, people you need to meet who you need to discuss, who you need to talk about with your colleagues, you need to understand what did they do. Who was J.J. Thompson and what were some of his experimental findings on cathode rays? J.J. Thompson, whose work with cathode rays built up to the discovery of the electron. He was an English physicist who made profound discoveries on cathode rays and led to the discovery of the electron. He also proposed the plum pudding model, wherein he hypothesized that negatively charged electrons were small particles held within a positively charged sphere via electrostatics. So he, he um, described the plum pudding model, which is a common uh, idea that you introduce to when you're first discussing periodic properties. And he also, his work led to the discovery of the electron. There was also Robert Millikan, who performed the famous Millikan oil drop experiment. Which aided in determining the fundamental charge of a single electron. So, who was Marie Curie? Marie Curie is a significant scientist that everyone should know about. She was a female scientist who won two Nobel Prizes her and her husband. And her children also won, one of children also won a Nobel Prize. The Curie family's work on radioactivity led to a lot of progress, achievement, and identification of alpha particles, beta particles, and gamma rays. She won two Nobel Prizes in Chemistry. And let's not forget the work of Rutherford, whose nuclear theory was foundational. He described most of the atom's mass and all of the positive charge as posit in the nucleus,
1: or placed, or situated in the nucleus. Who was Ernest Rutherford, and what were some components
0: of his nuclear model? So Rutherford was a leading nuclear physicist whose work led to the further development of atomic theory. He served as the director of Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge University. His nuclear theory had ideas around the following. For the atom, most of the mass and all of its positive charge is in the nucleus. Most of the volume of the atom is empty space, and the number of electrons and protons is equal to maintain an electrically neutral atom. So what does that mean, most of the volume of the atom is empty space? That points so or that gives you an idea that the massiveness of the atom is situated in the nucleus. The mass, the mass of electrons is negligible in this course by convention. However, the mass of the neutrons is one atomic mass unit, and the mass of the protons is one atomic mass unit. The number of electrons and protons is equal, typically the case in a stable neutral ground state
1: element, and those are equal. Okay was James Chadwick, and what did he discover? James
0: Chadwick was a British physicist who observed that the mass of the atom that was unaccounted for was due to the neutrons within the nucleus. His work led to the discovery of neutrons. So what is the
1: mass of a proton, and what is its charge? Take a few seconds, guess, think about it. Protons have a mass of 1.67 times 10 to
0: the minus 27 kilograms, or one atomic mass unit. We can discuss the relationship between kilograms and atomic mass units in a problem-solving session. Remind me. Also, a proton has a relative charge of positive 1.
1: What is the mass of an electron and what is its charge?
2: Electrons have a mass of nine point
0: one times ten to the minus thirty one kilograms, or five point five times ten to the minus four atomic mass units. Also, a electron, excuse that, has a relative charge of minus one. So let just I want to just narrow in on some quick ideas from this um animation. You no, know, Niels Bohr was very important. his very important in uh, chemistry. His idea of atomic spectroscopy involved the study of electromagnetic radiation emitted and absorbed by atoms. He postulated that each stationary state or orbits are fixed or quantized. He understood that electrons have stability and when transitioning between orbits, radiation is emitted or absorbed. Although his model was initially successful it was not a complete explanation that was replaced by a more developed
1: quantum physics theory that addressed the wave particle duality. And that's very important, that kind of leads us into the idea of wave particle duality.
0: So what is the mass of an elect- of a neutron and what is its charge? just before we transition into wave particle duality. Let's just continue going over a few foundational concepts. The mass of a neutron. A neutron has a mass of 1.67 times 10 to the minus 27 kilograms of one atomic mass unit. Also a neutron, rather, has a relative charge of zero. What are the symbols for atomic number and atomic mass? The symbol for atomic
1: number is Z, and the symbol for atomic mass is A. So
2: now let's discuss.
1: Let's discuss uh, the wave-particle duality idea. So before we get to wave particle duality, I want to introduce you
0: to the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment. Before we get to wave particle duality, I want to introduce you to that and then we'll discuss wave particle duality. But actually before we get to uh, showing you the images and describing it to you in the
1: form of we were just discussing it, I would like to show you a reference text that you can use as you do your studies, so this is Chemistry LibreText, and this is
0: a very good resource, students. Chemistry LibreText provides you with a variety of different textbooks and resources that you can use to empower yourself to learn. So, this is the Schrodinger's Cat Thought Experiment, and it basically gives you an idea as to the quantum strangeness. Or the the idea that quantum mechanical behavior is strange. Um, it, it introduces the idea that um things that, that equal probability of events occurring, but under observation one is definite, or one is more discreetly one is discreetly known, under observation, discretely known and observed. So um, let's go back to the PowerPoint. Now I want you to watch this video, and. I'm going to turn my camera off
1: and allow you to watch the video and then we will continue with the lecture after the two videos.
2: Brussels.
3: And he came here and was admitted on that day as a In November the 9th, 1933, the great Austrian physicist Erwin Schrodinger came to this room, this office where I work office of the president of Magdalen College. Schrodinger had been at the Solvay conference in Brussels and he came here and was admitted on that day as a fellow of Magdalen College using Latin phrases that we use to the present day. After the ceremony in this room the phone rang and it was from the Times of London and the times of london said that schrodinger had just been awarded the nobel prize so he was heard he'd won the nobel prize in this room and next day in the times and the telegraph newspapers it stated that schrodinger of oxford university had won the nobel prize even though he'd actually been employed before at the university of berlin What did Schrodinger win the Nobel Prize for? Well, it was for a paper he wrote in 1926 when he introduced his famous Schrodinger equation. Up to that time, um, the theory for explaining the energy of electrons in atoms had really been due to the famous physicist Niels Bohr who'd come up with a theory for explaining the spectrum of the hydrogen atom, the electronic spectrum of the hydrogen atom, and fitting the energy levels with his own formulae. But Bohr's theory didn't work very well at all for other atoms or even for molecules. It didn't seem to be a general one. What Schrodinger did is he came up with a general equation that worked for the hydrogen atom. and worked for predicting not just the energy levels of the hydrogen atom, but also like the intensities of the spectral lines, whether the lines in the spectrum are intense or not. He could predict that intensity, and that was new. Not even his collaborators or the people who were competing with him, like Heisenberg, knew how to do that, and Schrodinger did it with his equation. And then Schrodinger, in the same year, realised that he could apply his equation not just to the electronic energy levels of the hydrogen atom but to other problems like the vibration of a harmonic oscillator like to the rotation of a diatomic molecule the same equation could be applied and gave the results that agreed with experiment for those sorts of problems and then schrodinger realized his equation could also be adapted not just for simple processes but for processes that depend on time so in fact there are two schrodinger's equations what's called the time independent equation and the time dependent equation and but why the equation became so significant is that suddenly many scientists around the world realized that not only did it work for the hydrogen atom it worked for all atoms and all molecules in principle. And that means it had remarkable applications to nearly everything you can see depends on atoms and molecules. And Schrodinger's equation can be used to calculate all their properties. And if you solve his equation very accurately, you get essentially the right answer. So it was a very powerful theory that came out of Schrodinger's great work in 1926 for all atoms and molecules. Now the problem is, though, he ha- his equation was quite complicated mathematically and very difficult to solve for anything more complicated than the hydrogen atom, even for the helium atom. It involved quite a lot of difficult integration and differentiation and so on. And so. It didn't really change science so much in the very early days, but where the big change came with Schrodinger's equation was when computers came along. It was then possible to use computers to solve his equation and do that really accurately as time has gone on more and more. And that means Schrodinger's equation can be applied to more and more complicated systems, atoms, even now to even to solids, materials, and also to problems of biological importance. You can do calculations with Schrodinger's equation, for example, on proteins, on enzymes, on DNA and so on. Uh, And so it's become in the modern world an extremely powerful theory. It's the theory that underlies the whole of chemistry Molecular biology, material science, understanding the properties of materials. You can do calculations with Schrodinger's equation, and many people do that. Even in geology, you can calculate the temperature at the center of the Earth using variants of Schrodinger's equation. And so in the the 21st century, it's become really almost the essential tool for doing simulations on atoms and molecules. The other method, before Schrodinger, was developed by Isaac Newton, Newton's laws. And you could simulate atoms and molecules using uh, using Newton's laws, but those don't include, crucially, quantum mechanical effects, such as tunneling, such as probability. Uh, Newton's laws just don't work for atoms and molecules, but Schrodinger's equation does. So Schrodinger came here in 1933 and he came to work here in Oxford. Uh, he was a fellow in my college. He lectured at the University uh, of Oxford on the quantum theory. But he wasn't very happy here. He had an appointment which was almost like a postdoctoral assistant. After being a top professor in the University of Berlin, he had an appointment that was just renewed every year funded by ICI uh, the, the chemical company so he wasn't very happy and he was here just for 3 years and he missed his great friends in berlin he was a, he was very friendly with max planck who'd f- who, the, who the person who discovered quantum theory he was very friendly with einstein who was also in Berlin in the 20s. He missed his friends. And in the end, he was unhappy here. And after three years, he decided to move back to his home country of Austria, where he was he was uh, given an appointment at the University of Grasse in Austria, and also another appointment at the University of Vienna. And that's where Schrodinger went. He'd left Berlin in 1933 because he wasn't very happy with the politics that was going on in Germany at the time. Science and politics in those days really intermixed. Uh, He didn't like what the Nazis were doing so he came to Oxford but then he made the big mistake of going to Austria and he didn't realise that there were going to be problems in Austria, because Hitler's troops marched in, in 1938. And Schrodinger had to escape from Austria. So now we will continue with the lecture. Let's
1: look at video two, and then we'll continue with the lecture.
4: Austrian physicist Erwin Schrödinger is one of the founders of quantum mechanics, but he's most famous for something he never actually did a thought experiment involving a cat. He imagined taking a cat and placing it in a sealed box with a device that had a 50% chance of killing the cat in the next hour. At the end of that hour, he asked, What is the state of the cat? Common sense suggests that the cat is either alive or dead. But Schrödinger pointed out that according to quantum physics, at the instant before the box is opened, the cat is equal parts alive and dead at the same time. It's only when the box is opened that we see a single definite state. Until then, the cat is a blur of probability, half one thing and half the other. This seems absurd, which was Schrödinger's point. He found quantum physics so philosophically disturbing that he abandoned the theory he had helped make and turned to writing about biology. As absurd as it may seem, though, Schrodinger's cat is very real. In fact, it's essential. If it weren't possible for quantum objects to be in two states at once, the computer you're using to watch this couldn't exist. The quantum phenomenon of superposition is a consequence of the dual particle and wave nature of everything. In order for an object to have a wavelength, it must extend over some region of space, which means it occupies many positions at the same time. The wavelength of an object limited to a small region of space can't be perfectly defined, though, so it exists in many different wavelengths at the same time. We don't see these wave properties for everyday objects because the wavelength decreases as the momentum increases, and a cat is relatively big and heavy. If we took a single atom, and blew it up to the size of the solar system, the wavelength of a cat running from a physicist would be as small as an atom within that solar system. That's far too small to detect, so we'll never see wave behavior from a cat. A tiny particle like an electron, though, can show dramatic evidence of its dual nature. If we shoot electrons, one at a time, at a set of two narrow slits cut in a barrier, each electron on the far side is detected at a single place at a specific instant like a particle. But if you repeat this experiment many times, keeping track of all the individual detections, you'll see them trace out a pattern that's characteristic of wave behavior.
0: And this is what's referred to as the Young Split experiment. We will get that later on in the semester. This is pointing to and hinting to one of the big ideas that we're going to discuss
1: next lecture, which is wave-particle duality.
4: a set of stripes, regions with many electrons separated by regions where there are none at all. Block one of the slits, and the stripes go away. This shows that the pattern is a result of each electron going through both slits at the same time. A single electron isn't choosing to go left or right, but left and right simultaneously. This superposition of states also leads to modern technology. An electron near the nucleus of an atom exists in a spread-out, wave-like orbit. Bring two atoms close together, and the electrons don't need to choose just one atom, but are shared between them. This is how some chemical bonds form. An electron in a molecule isn't on just atom A or atom B, but A plus B. As you add more atoms, the electrons spread out more, shared between
1: And we account for this. This basically is describing what we describe as probability
0: distribution, which basically the a way of saying electrons exist over a, over a cloud, over a region of space, and you not know, a wide specific position. And this also hints at the idea of uncertainty, Heisenberg uncertainty, which basically describes that you cannot know with the same degree of accuracy the momentum or the position and the momentum of an electron at a specific point in
1: time with the same level
4: of accuracy. Between vast numbers of atoms at the same time, the electrons in a solid aren't bound to a particular atom but shared among all of them, extending over a large range of space. This gigantic superposition of states determines the ways electrons move through the material, whether it's a conductor or an insulator or a semiconductor. Understanding how electrons are shared among atoms allows us to precisely control the properties of semiconductor materials like silicon. Combining different semiconductors in the right way allows us to make transistors on a tiny scale, millions on a single computer chip. Those chips and their spread out electrons power the computer you're using to watch this video. An old joke says that the Internet exists to allow the sharing of cat videos. At a very deep level, though, The internet owes its existence to an Austrian physicist and his imaginary cat.
1: So this, ladies and gentlemen, this is a description of the Schrodinger's
0: cat thought experiment. We will discuss this um, before the lecture ends. However, just uh, make a quick note, Feel free to go to YouTube and get more of these TEDx videos. If you find a video that you think is beneficial to the class, you can send me an email with a link and I will, if it's an educational appropriate video, educationally and age appropriate video, I will look at it and determine whether it's appropriate for the class
2: discussion at that time. So let's go back to the lecture. Just before we,
1: just before we,
0: just before we conclude, I want to discuss Schrodinger's cat thought experiment, and then we will conclude this lecture for today. Now, just in case you didn't get it the first time, I want to explain it to you from the animations that have designed for this class. So, with this, we have Schrodinger's cat thought experiment. In the thought experiment, you you put a cat in a steel chamber for an experiment, and this whole scenario is just an imagination or an imaginary experiment. In the chamber, there is radioactive material, and a mechanism that, upon emission of an energetic particle by one of the radioactive atoms, a hammer breaks a flask of poison and results in a dead cat. Yeah, this is amazing. If the if the chamber is closed, and you do not observe what is going on. There is equal probability that both the cat is dead and the cat is alive by virtue of the system being observed. So let's make this let's behamize this thought experiment. So let's begin. Imagine there was an oil and beach spill by a pond in Agua. The area is enclosed by a mine business fence, so you must enter the area to observe what occurs. If the flamingo in the area shrinks from the pond, the flamingo, the flamingo, will die in the area. If you are not around to observe what occurs in that pond area, and the pond area is enclosed, the flamingo has equal probability of being dead and being alive by virtue of the fact that the system is not observed. So, what does this point to? What don't get lost in the details. But what does this point to? This point at quantum mechanical behavior and uniqueness and strange nature of it. It also hints at how quantum mechanical behaviour does not exactly transfer for an understanding of macroscopic behaviour. There is uncertainty and indeterminacy. Yes, the layer of electrons is strange. And as we conclude, I want to remind you many of these scientists met at a specific conference called the Solvay Conference where our physicists meet and if you look at the picture there's a characteristic picture of many of the scientists um in which they in this one photograph Albert Einstein Heisenberg all the others and that was at the Solvay conference next lecture we will discuss um the wave particle duality and other scientists. Once again thank you again I'm excited to be teaching you this semester. I hope you are able to accomplish a lot learn a lot Remember, I expect you to be hardworking, ethical, and responsible. Remember, you are not alone. We are in this together. This is an academic community. However, you are responsible to be ethical, hardworking, and a good potential
1: scientist. Be encouraged, be inspired, and see you next time for General Chemistry 1 Lecture.